But okay, so how do we know we have the right books in the Bible? It's the question for today. The technical term for this is uh, the canon, the canon of Scripture. Now, the canon of Scripture is not something you shoot out of. Uh, it is from the Greek, kanon there, and means rule or measuring stick. And obviously there can be different canons. You know, there's the canon of the LDS scriptures. It's whatever a religious community is deciding is kind of their holy book and assigning it as having authority for them. I've even heard Scientologists call the works of L. Ron Hubbard as being their canon. So it's a, uh, it's just a, a kind of a, it can be a sort of a generic term for whatever is considered scripture. I haven't talked too much in recent weeks about the Old Testament, so I'm going to spend a little bit of time on that today. So we're going to talk about the Old Testament canon today for a few minutes. Now, I've got two arrangements here. Uh, the Jewish arrangement for the Old Testament is the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's their, how they divide the can, their canon. We arrange it a little differently. The, the Christian arrangement is the Pentateuch, which is the first five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Then there's the historical books, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Kings, Chronicles, that sort of thing. And then we have the prophetic books and the wisdom books. The wisdom books is Psalms, Proverbs, Job, that sort of thing. So we, we have a slightly different arrangement, but we have the same the same books, just arranged a little differently. So this is um, Jewish arrangement. They have the Torah, and then they have the prophets. They have the early prophets, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, later prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and then they have what's called the Twelve. We call those the minor prophets. Now, when we talk about minor prophets, we're not talking them major and minor as in less important. It's longer, shorter. That's why they're called major prophets, minor prophets. Uh, in the Jewish canon, they call them the Twelve. Then they have the writings, which are all of these books. So this is their arrangement. And then we have the Christian arrangement of Torah, then the historical books, the wisdom or poetical books, and major prophets and minor prophets. So that's a little bit about that. But they're the same books, okay? Just arranged in a different order, arranged differently. Okay, now let's talk for a minute about this abbreviation of LX, LXX is 70. It's a Roman numeral, and it means the Septuagint. And this is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, why would they need a Greek translation of the Old Testament? Okay, but it was written in 200 B.C., before Jesus. So why would they need a Greek translation? Okay, Greek is a common language. What is it over here? Why would, why would the Jews need, it was about 200, 250. Why would they need a Greek translation of the Old Testament? Or if you're a Jew who's living in Rome, what language do you likely speak? Greek, right? So many Jews who were from the diaspora or the dispersion, these were Jews who had left the promised land during the captivity, 
of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, but they never went back to the land. And then they just spread over the ancient world. But Greek was the common language um, during the time of Alexander the Great, if you remember back to history in the seventh grade. One of Alexander's programs was to bring the culture of Hellenism, to bring Greek culture everywhere that he conquered. And part of that culture was the language. And so they needed, the Jews needed a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament because many of them who were in the diaspora no longer spoke Hebrew. And so that was a necessity. So it's called the translation of the 70. The reason they use this Roman numeral 70 is because there were 70 scholars who worked on the translation. And it came out of Alexandria. Now, we've talked about Alexandria several times because it was one of the early centers of Christianity. But it was also a center of Judaism outside of Palestine. And there were a lot of Jewish scholars down in Alexandria. There was a very famous library down there in Alexandria that unfortunately uh, burned down in ancient times. But it was a hub of academia for both Jews and Christians. So it was, the Septuagint was written or translated in Alexandria, and it was a Jewish Bible for the Jews of the diaspora. The Old Test, this is an Old Testament translation. Now, what I think is interesting about the Septuagint is this is the Bible of Jesus and the apostles and the early church. This is the Bible that they quote in the Gospels. They don't quote from the Hebrew Bible. They quote from the Septuagint. And this formed the foundation even and was carried over into early Christianity. It was seen as the Bible of the early church. And um, this leads us to a question. I've done this talk many, many times over the last 25 years. And there's one question I always get and I've never had a good answer to, which is, what, why do Catholics have additional books in their Bible? Okay, so I started looking into this because I'm like, this question comes up every time and I don't have a good answer for it. So I spent a goodly amount of time the last couple of months in preparation for this talk to try to figure this out. Because it's not something that's really taught in Protestant seminaries. You have to go look in other places that are outside of our tradition. And so I was trying to get to the bottom of it. And so there's, these additional books are called the Deuterocanonical books, or later canon is what Deuterocanonical means, is later canon. And these are not in our Protestant canon. That's why we don't have these books. But this is connected to the Septuagint. So this is why I had to go down this little road. So uh, what these are called is the Deuterocanonical books or later canon books are called the longer Old Testament canon. And the reason that they're included by ancient faith traditions, Catholics and Orthodox, is because they were part of the Septuagint. And the Septuagint was the, the canon of early Christianity. In fact, the Septuagint is still the, the, the primary um, translation that is used for most of the Eastern Orthodox churches. Uh, 
And it all comes from the Septuagint. These other additional books were all part of the Septuagint. From from 250 B.C. before Christ. These are included in the Septuagint and were and still are included in ancient faith traditions of Christianity. And so that's why when you look at a Roman Catholic Bible, there's extra books. And I never understood this until recently. So it's because the, the, the Septuagint was where the early church, it was the primary um, source for the Old Testament. They did not circulate the Hebrew um, version of the Old Testament in the early church. They, tr- they translated and preserved primarily the Septuagint. And so the Septuagint came to be very closely associated with Christianity, even though it started from Judaism. It was Jewish scholars who put the translation together, but it came to be very closely associated with Christianity. So after a while, by about 200 AD, the Septuagint fell out of favor with Jews because it was so closely linked with Christianity. And so it, the, we have the Hebrew texts that then start to be more copied and preserved. But this is why there are so f- many less of them. Okay, so the development of the Jewish canon starts off with the Septuagint. But then by about 200 AD, with the spread of Christianity, the Masoretic canon, or the Hebrew canon, the Jewish canon, kind of switches over to the Masoretic tradition. They get out of the Greek, they get out of the Septuagint, because it has become so closely associated with Christianity that they go back to the Masoretic text. Now, there are a few other canons in Judaism, but the primary one is the Masoretic canon, and that's the one that Jews use today. And there is a Jewish-Ethiopian canon that's a little different, but it's only in Ethiopia uh, with the Ethiopian Jews, and then there's also the Samaritan canon, which, believe it or not, there's still a few hundred Samaritans um, living in the Palestine area, but they only use uh, Genesis through Deuteronomy. But these are the various Jewish canons. So this is the one of the ancient world. It's longer, but it, Jews no longer use the Septuagint. Now they, if you ask a, a modern Jew today, they use the Masoretic. Now, reasons for the longer canon. I'm going to give you reasons for the longer and the shorter canon. The longer canon is that it's included in the Septuagint. So at one time, the Jews did see these books as having some level of authority and that they needed to be translated into Greek and preserved. And we do find many of them being preserved among the Dead Sea Scrolls around this same time. There is an ancient faith precedent in Christianity. It is included in the Catholic and Orthodox canons. And they were not removed until the mid-1600s by Protestants. In fact... The longer canon was included in the early 1611 version of the King James Bible. 
So if you look at the, at the 1611 version of the KJV, it included the deuterocanonical or later canon books. And even though that came out of as a Protestant, um, it was a Protestant thing, it was included. And these are quoted, these longer canon books are quoted by many of the church fathers. So these are the main reasons. So when you talk to your Catholic friends, I want you to have some understanding. The Catholics did not add these books. I hear Protestants say that all the time. The accurate way of saying it is, we took books out in the 1600s. Okay? So this is, I hear Protestants make this comment all the time, that, well, Catholics added these books. No, they were there from the beginning. And they preserved those books. Now, reasons for the shorter canon. <clears throat> this is what we have as Protestants is a shorter canon. We don't include the deuterocanonical books. Well, there are some reasons for that. Uh, Jesus refers to in Matthew eleven fifty one and in Ma- uh, Luke eleven fifty one and Matthew twenty three. The blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. And many people take this as Abel showing up in Genesis chapter 4 all the way through Zechariah, who's the last um, minor prophet that we have. So they're saying that's kind of a shorthand way of referring to the beginning and the end of, of the canon. And that that is part of the rationale that for Protestants to remove those books. Okay? Jesus referred to a three-part division of Hebrew scripture. The law of Moses, the prophets, for a minute there I thought that said the puppets, the prophets and the Psalms in Luke 24:44. This is after his resurrection. He's on the road to Emmaus and he explains to the disciples, he re-explains the whole Old Testament to them and it says he did it through the law, the prophets, and the Psalms or the writings. And that would fit with the Jewish organizational pattern of their canon. It ex- this would exclude the later testamental books. Um, another reason for the shorter canon is that Jewish historian Josephus listed a number of books. And he listed it with the standard um, shorter canon that we have today that Protestants and Jews share. And there is another Jewish source that is a list the, uh, from out of Babylon. It's a Jewish Babylonian source that lists the identical same books that we have today in our Protestant canon. And these are the same as in the Jewish canon. So the Protestant canon and the modern Jewish canon are identical. The Masoretic canon, okay? So this is the answer to the Catholic canon question. So we just want to be careful to understand that Catholics didn't add anything. Protestants took books out. And there were reasons on both sides for those decisions. Okay? All right. I was trying to avoid that term. For, yeah. Okay. They are sometimes called apocryphal books. I was using the term deuterocanonical because it's more technically accurate. Because it's confusing Because there's also New Testament Apocrypha, and those are totally different. And we'll get to those toward the end. So I prefer to call these books deuterocanonical books, because that's more of the technically correct term. 
And when you use apocryphal, it really muddies the water because apocrypha is a type of literature in the ancient world. And these are not that type of literature. So it's very unfortunate that they sometimes are called apocryphal. So I was using the word deuterocanonical for that reason. And so we'll talk about apocryphal later um, when we get to the New Testament, okay? All right. New Testament canon has its own unique journey. We've talked in the class previously about how starting around 50 A.D., uh, books began to be circulated by the church. They were copied. Uh, they, they were written, and then they were copied, and many were recognized as sacred scripture. All of the books of the New Testament were universally preserved and circulated as holy scripture by the church, except for this handful of books. Everything was very secure on the New Testament canon as to what books ought to be preserved and circulated as sacred scripture. The only exceptions are Hebrews, James, 2nd and 3rd John, 2nd Peter, Jude, and Revelation. And each of those had their own unique journey getting into the canon. But all of the other books, there was no dispute. Okay, So we're going to have a handout here. This is the most useful handout that I have found. There were a few books that were disputed. So we're going to look at this. The key lists of what books were considered sacred scripture. So there is some writings by a guy named Origen, where he names all the books that ought to be considered in the New Testament canon. And in his list, Origen is the second from the top. So his date is 225. And he says, yeah, Hebrews is in, James, no. John, 2nd and 3rd John, no. 2nd Peter, no. Jude, no. Revelation, yes. So these are all lists. The important lists are the Council of Laodicea in 363. This is when the church bishops came together. It's about in the top third here. Church of Laodicea. That's the important one in 363. And you can see there Hebrews, James, John, Peter, Jude were all in. The only one that wasn't is the book of Revelation. But then you can see right under it, you see Athanasius in 367. He includes all of the books that are in now. So you can see that there's, there's pretty wide acceptance of most of the books. The, the biggest one that was kind of on the bubble was the book of Revelation. And um, again, all of these books have various reasons why they got in. Hebrews largely got in because the doctrine in it, it presented in it was so important. And so even though it doesn't have an author explicitly mentioned, the, 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 the theology was the main reason that it, that it got in. And it is connected historically to the Apostle Paul. Um, anyways, this, are, this is kind of an interesting, helpful thing, because if you watch like 
uh, documentaries on uh, the History Channel, they make it sound like the New Testament canon was in just this chaotic disarray, and nobody knew what books were supposed to be in. And then they got together at the Council of Laodicea, and it was like, okay, we have to decide what's in and what's out. And All right, everyone who wants this book, raise your hand. You know, it, that's not what was ha- Yeah, that's not what was happening. These books were already being copied, circulated by the church. It was just, again, formalizing what the church was already doing. Um, and for reasons that we're going to go over right now. Okay, so typically how things happen is... Somebody comes along and says, and tries to muddy the water. The church is going along. They're preserving certain books. They're circulating certain books. Everyone's in agreement. It's not a problem. Then along comes a heretic. And a guy named Marcion. Marcion wanted to cut out all the Jewish elements out of the Bible. This could be complicated. (laughs) So we, we might need to cut out the entire Old Testament and large portions of the Gospels. Okay, so the, when Marcion came along, he, he had his own list of what books ought to be considered authoritative. And the church says, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't do that. <laughs> we have already, you know, had universal practice here that these are the books you can't be throwing books off the list. You know, you're just one guy. So probably his bishop went to him first and said, you know, Marcion, you might want to rethink this. Excommunication could be difficult for you. It could be a lonely existence. And he didn't repent, and then it worked its way up the ladder, and then eventually Marcion was excommunicated as a heretic. But the, this is, was really kind of one of the first controversies about what books ought to be considered scripture. Then we have the Montanist controversy, also a second century controversy. And this was a, a controversy of, uh, it was a group of Christians, it was kind of a break-off group. The technical term for them is that they were schismatics. They were very much against professional priests and clerics. They wanted to allow women in leadership, and they were all excommunicated from the church. They started their own church, and many of the sources that I read, it seemed to indicate that this was largely behind a lot of the hesitation to canonize the book of Revelation, because the Montanists loved the book of Revelation, and uh, they, they uh, were always using the book of Revelation. And so there was, that was some of the hesitancy behind making it canon was because of its close association with the Montanists who were seen as schismatics and were excommunicated. But these are just a few or a couple of the controversies that happened around the canon. And so then we start seeing these lists like on your handout here where the father's start commenting on what books are in, what books aren't. One of the key ones is John Christossom. That I think they left off that thing, so I added it here. He's a very important um, figure in Eastern Orthodoxy. Then we have the Council of Laodicea, and one of their jobs was to just finalize what was already in place. They did omit the book of Revelation. 
Athanasius, Bishop of Alexandria, includes it. It's exactly the same canon that we have today. So there was pretty wide agreement. There are a few exceptions. So when you talk to people, you know, sometimes these things come up. Is Second Peter really, should it really be in the Bible? But there's a lot of doctrine we can make without it. You know, nothing's really hinging on Third John. Yeah, they're, they're just early, they're books by early fathers. And they're, their writings are very early. And so some, sometimes they were circulated as because they were early epistles that maybe they had some uh, possible consideration in the canon. But most of, uh, they weren't really considered canonical. They were more considered, again, like having spiritual value. They were important. They were early. Um, they gave insight into the workings of the early church and how they thought you can read them. They have spiritual values. Again, it's like reading a C.S. Lewis book. There's nothing dangerous, weird, or strange about it. It gives you some great ancient faith perspective on early Christianity. Well, I think what it's speaking to there is that there was an, an understanding among the early Christians as to what scripture was. But there's no list. It was just, we recognize that these books are scripture. That's why we copy them, preserve them, circulate them, and that the writings of Paul were seen from early, early on. I think in Peter, it mentions Paul a couple of times as being an, um, an important and authoritative source. And so, but the, the, the consideration of the New Testament books as being scripture or what, what we call the New Testament books now, I mean, that was its own process too, you know, and you have to understand that history is messy. You know, there was no list that came forward in scripture or from heaven that said, here's the books, you know. This is sort of the witness and the testimony of the early church of the, the testimony of the Holy Spirit being in these people that they just universally recognized these are the writings that are going to be authoritative for us. And I do think that the value of this handout is that it shows that these other books, while valuable, were never circulated as Holy Scripture. And there wasn't a lot of debate about it. Um, there are a few books that were sort of what I call on the bubble. But we don't get any major doctrine from Third John. I mean, even if tomorrow we had some epiphany as a church and we said, well, we're taking Third John out of the canon, nothing's collapsing at that point. But eventually it made it in. And so we want to be careful of um, being intimidated by others who say, oh, the New Testament canon was so controversial, nobody knew what books were in or out until the mid-300s at Laodicea. That's just not factually true. The books were already being circulated, preserved, copied, and that is part of what tells us their importance. They needed copies of the Gospel of John to go out. Why? Because it was considered Holy Scripture. You know, so the, the whole preservation process that we've been talking in class about the last few weeks is important because that gives us a good tip-off as to what early Christians considered scripture. So conclusion, conclusions, this is sort of our talking points for this conversation, is that the New Testament underwent a compilation process. There was a history. There was a process, that, and that is just part of our history as Christians. 
Most of it was established before the second century. 20 of the 27 books were accepted in the canon from the beginning. So I always want to emphasize that. Look at all the books that were accepted. Yes, there's a handful that were on the bubble, but they made it in. All branches of Christianity, Orthodox Catholics and Protestants, accept the same New Testament canon. It is universally accepted among Christians that we have the same New Testament canon. The only books that differ are those few deuterocanonical books that were preserved as part of the Septuagint and came down through ancient faith traditions. Okay, Those are the only differences. New Testament, 100% agreement across the board by all branches of Christianity. Okay, so... Anyone ever hear of the book, The Da Vinci Code? It's kind of old now. Yeah, there's a movie. Yeah. So this is uh, kind of history channel um, views on the canon. So this is what you'll run into if you have a young person in your oikos. This is probably the view of the canon that they've been exposed to, is what I call um, Da Vinci Code uh, versions of the canon. So the view that they present in that book by Dan Brown is that the New Testament canon did not emerge until the 4th century at the Council of Laodicea when books were compiled and edited by men who possessed a political agenda to solidify their own power base. So they were picking the books based on what they wanted in and they left out all of these Alternative voices is what they like to call them. The alternative versions of Christianity. They were marginalized. They were minorities. They were left out. Can you kind of see the narrative here and how this appeals to our culture? Well, in Christianity, we call these alternative versions of Christianity heresy. But, um, (coughs) you know, alternative is much more sexy these days. But back then, we just called them anathema and we were done with it. But this is what we have to understand. And this is why I keep emphasizing this point in this class is that we're looking for the things that were universally practiced in the church. Because what our culture wants to do is take these little like regional little regional things and say, "Oh, this was a marginalized voice. They were left out. There was a minority position. It was another alternative version of Christianity." No. It was never part of the universal concept of Christianity. They were excommunicated. They were deemed schismatics or heretics. Okay? So, what about apocryphal books? Okay, we've now arrived at this term, apocryphal. Apocryphal means hidden or obscure writings about Jesus or the teachings of his apostles. These, you might want to um, underline, circle, put a star next to. These books, apocryphal books, are not viewed as Holy Scripture by Orthodox Catholics or Protestants. These books were never, ever, ever in the running to be in the canon. But these are the books that our culture is absolutely obsessed with. (laughs) The Gospel of Thomas. The Gospel of Mary Magdalene. The... um, the uh, visions of Peter, all of these apocryphal books that came later. So I've, this is a little chart. Notice 
then on all the lists, all of these books are accepted. These are the books on the bubble that we talked about. But these were affirmed. Here's some other lists. Seven or eight of nine lists included these. Seven of nine included James. Six of nine. So these were on the bubble, but they eventually got in. Notice this header. Rejected. Not in the running. Yeah. So the Acts of Andrew, the Acts of John, the Gospel of Peter, the Acts of Peter, Acts of Paul, Gospel of Hebrews. These were all books that were using the names of the apostles to try to write a story, okay? This is a form of literature in the ancient world where you would take the name of a famous person and you would craft a story about them. If I tell you right now, if I tell you, um, think of the genre of comic strip, you would have an image in your mind of what a comic strip is, wouldn't you? You would know what that is. And you would know that a comic strip is not history. Those are two very different genres of literature. Are you with me? Yeah, there was no Superman. And Superman might not be historical. If I say the word um, ancient mythology, you have an idea of what that is. And then if I say ancient mythology is not a history, it's not the same as George Washington. You know what I mean by that, right? It's a genre of literature. And you know when you have a genre of literature, you know what to expect. You know what to think about it. You don't get confused. You don't confuse comic strips with historical facts. Those are two different genres of literature. It was understood that these were fictional accounts about famous people. There's Jewish apocryphal literature. There's Roman apocryphal literature. It's a genre of literature in the ancient world that was popular for about two or 300 years. And so what these early Christians did was that they followed the lead of their culture and created Christian apocryphal literature. It's sort of like a Christian heavy metal rock band. You ever seen those like Coca-Cola shirts? And then there's like the Christianized version of the Coca-Cola label. This, this is what this is. They, they knew what this was. They borrowed this form of literature and they Christianized it. So, but these were never taken as being historical facts historical accounts of the early apostles. Now, it's possible that they could have used some oral traditions that were not preserved in Scripture, but they were never looked upon as being Holy Scripture. They were never preserved and circulated universally by the church as being Holy Scripture. The only person who thinks these books belong in the canon is Dan Brown and the History Channel. But this is the pervasive conversation in our culture about the canon is that these poor books were left behind and marginalized, and they were left out. These were regional writings of aberrant forms of Christianity. They were using the, uh, the, the, um, the genre of apocryphal literature. It has to be apostolic, early, and universal. If it's has a connection to, the, to an apostle. That's how a book got into the canon. If it was early and if it was universally accepted, those are three very critical keys to discerning 
um, both the canon and, and other things that we've looked at and, and the Trinity, the, the nature of Jesus, he's God and man. He's early apostolic and universal. Okay, these are very important criteria. If you, if you understand these, just these very basic matters, you'll be able to avoid many errors in your life. <laughs> Much confusion in our culture. And you'll be able to speak, uh, I think, better to people in your oikos when they bring up these sorts of objections. Now, if you're a super nerd and you want to know more details about the canon, uh, Bruce Metzger's book is the best one that I've found. There are uh, simpler conversations uh, from a Protestant, uh, distinctly Protestant point of view, but if you want, like, if you're the nerd like me and you really want the details, that's, that's the book for you. If you want simpler treatments, just go Google something on the Internet. You'll <laughs> probably find it. But um, I wanted to find at least one quality source and if you did want to, if you had very specific questions, you wanted to dig deeper. Uh, Metzger's book is, is really the best, the best one to look at. Thank you. You guys have been patient. I hope this has been useful for you. So, all right, let me pray. Father, thank you for preserving your word for us and through history. And I just am, more I study these matters, I'm in such awe of your providence and how you worked in and through um, great men and women of God to preserve your word for us today and that we can have good reasons to think about what we call Holy Scripture. It's not just a blind faith that was handed to us by our parents, but that we can actually look into these matters and we can look into history and, and it builds our confidence and we understand a little bit about it so that we know that when we're reading your word, it's so life-changing and life-transforming that this isn't just all in our imagination. This isn't all make-believe that you really worked in and through human history to preserve something for us so that we could hear your words today. And may they speak into our hearts and change our lives. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.